1: If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special live events, or buy that merch, a.k.a. that hat I always wear, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. For a little bit of context, we just wanted you to know that a lot of these were recorded before quarantine. And as we know, a lot has changed in 2020. So again, please stay safe out there. And enjoy the new episodes of And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's living legends reinvigorated one of the biggest brands in show business the way Alan Menken and Howard Ashman did three decades ago. They've won Oscars and Grammys together to prove it. But this superpower couple took two separate paths to get here. After they, side note, met at the BMI Theater Workshop, they each individually went on to compose award-winning musicals. One of them became the youngest and fastest to win the EGOT, and is now the only human with a second EGOT, the record of all records. For those who don't know, that's an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and a Tony. But the sum of their parts has written the evergreen of all evergreens. And together, they continue to write some of the most ubiquitous songs in the entire world. From New York and Connecticut, where they are now, by way of the stage, the screen, the bigger screen, and your streaming service, these two demonstrate that you can have a successful family and play music professionally at the same time. And the writer is R. Kristen Anderson Lopez and Bobby Lopez welcome
2: hey, wow Thank hi Ross. that
3: was that was over the top Thank i know i think
2: we needed that i think <laughs> we, it's been a long time since we felt good about ourselves can you come every day and say so?
3: <laughs> i
1: i'll make a deal with you guys that anytime you guys need to pick me up i'm up early you guys should <laughs> call me and just say hey can you reread that intro and yeah, so maybe the intro, intro
2: again.
3: <laughs> or maybe we could just listen to the podcast again.
2: Oh, that's right. Oh, we could save you the I, trouble and let you sleep in.
1: I, I, that's that's fine too. Um, uh, okay, so I mean, what better way to start than uh, with a with one our first guest question? Before we even get to it, uh, John Bazzetti would like to ask you guys. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's our agent.
1: That's that's our that's our, that's my agent too by that's the way. That's agent? Oh my god! Yeah, right. Agent um,
3: brothers.
2: Agent twins.
1: Yeah, agent twins. Uh, uh, what is it like to live and work together twenty four seven?
2: I mean, most of the time, I'm going to say ninety nine and forty four one hundredths of the time, it's the best. It's just the yeah. best. He's my best friend. He makes me laugh every second of the day. Um, and then there's the occasional 66 one hundredths of the time um, <laughs> that if we're both feeling stressed or scared and we aren't able to access that, um, access the words to say I'm stressed and scared, then um, we can really lash out at each other. <laughs> but it's very rare.
3: I'm sorry. I just remembered. I'm, I meant to hit record on our end so we could send you audio. Do you need it?
1: I mean, I I don't know. Joe, we can probably do it from here. Yeah, Joe, or should we start? Okay oh, enough? You want- Joe, can you hear us? Joe, are you there? Joe, did you go say hi to Sonny? Sonny's his son. I don't know. I think we can keep going.
3: Okay, no? all right. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to stop us, but I, I just realized, oh,
1: That's sh- no, okay. We're we're good.
3: Okay.
2: I, I had given a big, like, Brene Brown power of vulnerability answer, and then you were like, I got to hit the recording equipment. <laughs> well, okay.
1: In you know, as you said sixty sixth one hundredth of the time you have issues and and I, I mean, not to jump into other guest questions because i I will get into our normal um you know the way our normal show, but uh, another one of our our friends, um Adina Menzel, asked the question. she says <laughs> um, when you don't really like an idea proposed by your significant other how do you effectively and gracefully communicate that? So that just sort of runs into this. So I feel like I have to just jump into the second question.
3: That's a really good question yeah. too. And it kind of builds into the first thing. And it's all about um, really communicating honestly and remembering for me, like when we first started, I always thought, okay, whenever I'm writing a song with somebody, the song is the most important thing. And as long as we get to a great song, we, we've we achieved something and we've spent this hour well or whatever. Um, but through working with Kristen, I think I've realized that what's most important is the person you're working with. Just people are more important than art in the end. <laughs> and um, and that the art won't, if you put the person first, the art will never suffer. It's, it always comes out actually probably better. And you don't burn through your collaborations as much. You don't create a well of of ill will. Um, so you know things like ideas that you don't um, spark to. You have to try them. You you really should try them. And usually, if they don't they aren't sparking. Eventually, both of you will see it. So I, it's a it's one of those emotional lessons that's hard to learn, and I always forget. But and I will knock down ideas from time to time. But I try not to. We try and try everything.
2: There are moments where, uh, you know, I can think of one when we were really still trying to solve the end of Frozen Broadway. And um, we had sort of made a, a rule that we weren't going to use let it go at the end. Um, but finally something sort of hit me and I was like, I, I actually think we need to use let it go at the end to just, to have Anna sing it to her. Um, and I had to really, almost use like okay this is me using the I get to you get to try it card um, that we very rarely have to ever use but there are occasionally times that I just have to say trust me trust me just go with me play with me I know you think this is wrong but just pretend like you think it's right and then he got it under his finger you know we were sort of improving it at the piano and then I could just you could see the the way that it was working sort of wash over him and suddenly he was like, you're right. Yeah. (laughs) But I I had to really force it.
3: I'd say like most of the time, if you let yourself try your collaborator's idea, you'll be won over by it and you'll see what, what was so great about it that I I don't know about you, but I get into these time-saving ways of thinking um, where I kind of know what'll work for me and I know what'll, what'll, you know, what's a quick way to get to something really good, but it's very important. I mean, just think about that. You wouldn't, you don't want to be in, stuck in that spot as an artist. The great thing about having a collaborator is ideas you wouldn't have thought of.
2: Also um, we have a rule we want to get a sign for our office that says, do not hit head on wall. Um, <laughs> um, we have a rule that when, when we're just, just really not finding it, that we just say, you know what, let's take a break, let's go for a walk, or maybe it's time for lunch. Um, Blood sugar can be an important thing, making sure we stop and have protein and a nice...
3: And intimate relations. I mean, that's one of the... (laughs) That's part of what we have that other songwriters don't.
2: We have been known to do that. Sorry if our kids are listening. (laughs) And sometimes... (laughs) sometimes
1: it's, It's as simple as just walking through a door. I mean, how many times do people talk about where they have, you know, there's... This cheesy Nashville joke that you hear when it's like an epiphany.
2: Yes, epiphany, yeah.
1: Yep. Exactly. yeah and it's like walking through doors, it's so simple and, and it's probably good advice just in life. It's it's you know, it's okay to stand up, walk around, think for a second, and come back to something. Because the only way you get perspective is time. And it, you know, that's what having a good collaborator a good collaborator does is they cut down that time a little bit you know but it if you guys are single minded and in, in some ways then that you know i imagine that it helps to to just take a break do do you find that you guys end up because you've written together so long now do you find that you guys have the same ideas you know bobby like you were saying where you have a shortcut sometimes to something good is it is it hard for you guys to break out you know, even I, I wanna go through your story a little bit, but the you know, the feel of the feel of your songs vary. So somebody's coming in and saying, How about we try a song like this? And you guys are still pushing each other, but do you guys one, find it hard to think outside of the collective box when you have the same collaborator?
2: one of the great things about having kids uh, and they they play such an important part in our lives um, they they keep growing and evolving so the you know when we were writing frozen one the movie um, we had little kids that were obsessed with princesses and wearing princess dresses now we have a teen and a tween and you know they're they're exposing us to all kinds of amazing indie bands that you can only find on TikTok, And, um, it's, what's wonderful when you're growing along with a a human is that we keep evolving and our references keep evolving because we've got a, a human being evolving that we are in charge of two of them, actually.
1: Yeah. I love that. I think that's really wise. I, I want to tell a little bit of your story because I always think it's important to realize that humans that you two are are both humans and not just um, you know who you guys are that you guys had to get here so both of you are born in some place in New York or raised in New York, I should say, so let's do the you know what's the Cliffs Notes version because there's so much that happened after you guys met, but from you guys being born to b m i uh, a BMI theater write, writing camp, not a camp. It's a workshop. Work, yeah. A workshop. That's, that's where you, you guys met. So, um, you know, let's start. Uh, Kristen, go. Give us a little bit of your background. Are your parents musicians?
2: My parents aren't musicians, though. My my father really should have been. He's a natural lyricist, and we talk about the genetic mutation because. I I am a lyricist, and my two other sisters are also lyricists, also working. Also, you know, my sister Kate uh, is working on Central Park. So I'm going to give you the short version, though. Um, I grew up in Westchester, and I fell in love with musicals really, really early, like three or four. And by five, you know, I got to see Annie on Broadway. Um and we used to have a whole group of neighborhood kids outside that didn't have anything to do. And I used to put musicals on in the backyard, like get them all to play parts. And I directed and starred and designed and marketed for these musicals. Um, and looking at it now, um, you know, I really was in love with them with making theater, but the narrative- And dressing not... your brother up in and... <laughs> women's clothes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> making my, my poor brother, who's on the uh, spectrum. He's, he's Asperger's. Um, uh, he, he had to wear a lot of tutus and things. Um, anyway, um, I kind of downloaded a, a narrative early on that women who like theater have to be actresses. So I really bought into a I'm going to be a Broadway actress dream, and did a lot of acting. My parents then moved to Charlotte, North Carolina where I was in a lot of shows in Charlotte. Um, And then in college, I was a theater and psychology double major because my dad insisted that I have a fallback. And your fallback
1: was psychology?
2: My fallback was psychology. (laughs) And I actually, I used that psychology card. I ended up working with schizophrenic patients for a while in my twenties. Um, when I when the acting thing just wasn't what I wanted it to be, I I was I graduated from Williams with this wonderful degree, and I was playing all these nuns in New Hampshire. I was doing the whole audition thing, um, you know. Was called back for Rent twice, but always uh, never got in. We almost got the national tour playing Zitel and Fiddler on the Roof, but I wasn't Jewish enough. They told me. Um, uh, you know, all these, I, I kept getting a close, a close chance of the dream, the ticket out of hell, but I always ended up just playing a nun in New Hampshire. Mm. And so I quit the business, worked with schizophrenic patients for a while, came back to the business. And, um, finally one day someone told me, uh, Mark Holman of, of the writer of urine town, um, told me like, you're a lyricist. Cause I was rewriting all these lyrics backstage and, always making parodies.
3: She was in the original Fringe town. I
2: was in the original. Ah. And I was solidly mediocre. Uh, (laughs) I played an an old lady. Uh, I played Ma strong. And um, I was definitely mugging a lot. But uh, anyway, I got into BMI. And the moment that I played my first song and I saw how it landed and it made people laugh, it was really like, the sky just opened and was like, this, this is what you're supposed your to do. your
1: first song? You know, was, was that also your first song, or was that the first song you performed in front of people where you could it was, tell?
2: It really was like my first original song. Everything up until then had been parodies that I wrote for different shows. This really was my the first time that I had been brave enough to use my own words and work with a composer that I was assigned to um, and and see what it was, if I became a writer. And, and it just felt like, it just felt like, oh, this. It felt like home to me. Um, what was that? in love with it. What was that song called? Um, The first assignment at BMI is a sad hello or a happy goodbye. Um, Mm. So I wrote a happy goodbye and it was called How to Say Goodbye to Randall High from the perspective of a really type A um, valedictorian who had been bullied all through high school. Uh, So it was it was her giving this speech and and telling everybody off. Wow. <laughs> it was fun. Yes. It also exorcised some of my uh, high school demons.
1: It gives you hope when you can, you know, the, the all an artist needs is a little bit of hope to keep going. And I think even just getting close to getting into shows is better for, or worse, for prolonging a career for, you know, as long as you're close, that'll keep you going, you know? And even those moments of satisfaction I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine that feeling that success, even at that BMI workshop the first time, probably has, you know, I see the joy that you have when you speak about it. My assumption is that 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 for you holds a similar place as some of the awards that you've won and some of the other things that you've been around to, to know that, wow, this is the moment that I feel like I should pursue this. Not only was she
3: the the sort of top of her class at BMI as a lyricist, but she was also sort of this dazzling beauty. There weren't a lot of
1: girls Aww. in the class. She
3: was like all the guys just wanted to be with her.
2: Dazzling beauty is a relative thing in a class full of uh, full of writers.
3: But she was she was super confident and excited. I just remember like her eyes just sparkled, you know, with uh, with excitement and and like you said, hope um yeah refreshing renewal all that stuff hope
2: is the key word because or or the ability to be proactive one of the things that was so frustrating as a performer for me was to to have to do something i wasn't great at which is auditioning and i had to sort of beg for a job and i had to go through this this thing that brought up all this anxiety and tightness for me in order to get to do what I loved. And here as a writer, I found this ability to all, all the paths were open to me as long as I, I was in control i was the one who could persist i was the one who could you know fall on my face or write a bad song and then get up the next day and write another song which is different than when you fall on your face you don't get a job as an actor and then you're waiting for the next audition and you're you're going in without control for me it was about control <laughs>
1: <laughs> another theme. a lot of singers are if you sing well and you're little then somebody, they naturally just say go on stage and either you end up in a in a band or you end up in a in an a cappella group or you end up in something where you have to perform and you have to, I think a lot of songwriters have to deal with this moment of, I'm actually not made to be a performer. You know, that some of it is, a, a, it doesn't mean you can't per, write for a performer or even perform in a studio, right. you know? But maybe that doesn't mean you have to perform in front of, you know that it's not about being on stage
2: well yes and i i think that so many of my friends who are still in the business are also wonderful auditioners and they also have whatever that ability is to to compartmentalize like okay that was a bad audition i'm gonna relax and go in differently next time where and, and I don't know if that has to do with birth order. I have the little psychologist in me loves to look at like second, third children do much better than first children. First children go into that audition room with with the expectations, with the Elsa I must be perfect uh, kind of thing. Um, and I think second and third children have been beaten up since the second they existed, and they're just a little more resilient and a little more like ah eh, I didn't win this time. I'm going to get them next time. That's That's
1: just a theory. One question about being a lyricist in, in this world. And, and I I wish that, you know, I find that a lot of uh, pop country hip hop writers tend to not edit lyrics and they tend to feel like that the moment that they write it, it, that there's some sort of, Magic that they're supposed to leave it the way they, you know, that day. And if you work at all in theater, part of the joy is the editing and finding, oh, no, there's a better word. And it might have been weeks, months, years later, and you still think of better words.
2: Absolutely.
1: As a lyricist who excels even at that point, how close to a first draft are you? Is that a do you have a consistent process?
2: Um, we we don't have a consistent process. Um, we different songs come out in different ways. Um, you know, just to use specific examples, "Do the Next Right Thing" was written like in one sitting at the side of my bed in a towel because I I just gotten the whole song. I've been thinking about our friend Chris Buck who had lost his son who who's the director of Frozen and Frozen 2 along with Jennifer Lee and and the song just sort of came out and then I handed it to Bobby and he he had this tune and and those are the nice ones then there's often a lot of time that I'll scribble something I'll show it to Bobby Bobby's a wonderful um mirror and wonderful person to say, I really like this line and I think that's our song. Um, And we'll talk it out and, you know, sometimes we'll wrestle it together
3: on a whiteboard. Yeah, we talk a lot. Um, And I always like to uh, procrastinate by talking so that by the end of all the talking, (laughs) weeks of talking about a song, you kind of have the song and then you can just put it together.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, that process of... Defining what the song's about is something you know. I'm trying to get writers to not just write a title, but to take a go through go through the first draft, write a poem, write you know, try to try to flesh out the idea more. Because by the time you get there, weeks later, and you're in a session, you've already thought of you know how how many ways the song could go. um Bobby, tell me a little bit about your history, because. You were born in in the city, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. I was born in Manhattan. My parents were um, NYU folks. They met at NYU when they were going there and working there. Um, and they were both uh, neither of them were musicians at all. But they, I think they, my dad had um, really wanted to be a like a short story writer or a novelist or something in fiction, and he ended up in PR. And my mom had a very um strong spirit just in terms of follow your follow your joy like do do something that makes you happy don't end up in a in a job that's going to make you um depressed your whole life and um and I think she identified with artists so I think she pushed me and my brother who was also a uh, a creative guy um into into this field really like as soon as I expressed an interest in music they Sign me up for lessons. So I had said when I was four, I said, "I want to, want a guitar for Christmas." And they were like, "Oh, we're going to get you a really good guitar. We're going and we're going to sign you up for lessons." And I was like, "No, no, it's, I just want the plastic Mickey Mouse guitar in in the drugstore that I saw. I just want that one." <laughs> um, but eventually, we we moved to Massachusetts, and then we that didn't work out. We moved back to New York into a sublet that had a piano, and that was the piano they. They were like, okay, here's here's a sign. Let's sign him up for lessons on this. And that's where I got started. My um my piano teacher was was different in that he had me write songs from very young. And uh, and I started I started writing songs at seven because um and he would make me write them out. I was like, You me? You want me to write the music on the paper? Um and my first song was um it was called Oy Ve, What a Day. Hmm. It was, it was, it was a very Jewish-themed song for a little half-Filipino kid. Um, and, right. um, and then I got into okay. you know acting in school, high school. I was in West Side Story in fifth grade, um, and then Fiddler on the Roof. And then I was in a, a, a drama group where I got to write songs for original shows that they did. Um, and it got to be me writing a show every semester, uh, which was really great practice. And um,
1: are these normal length, two hour you <laughs> no. know,
3: uh,
1: intermission shows that you were writing at the time?
3: No, they were sort of. They ended up being teen kind of issue oriented. There'd be one about, um, you know, there was there was one about all the issues. It was like AIDS and teen pregnancy and and. uh chemical dependency and just like all the most depressing things in one show and they like, were they were an hour long bobby's like, like, gonna
2: kill me if i bring up a song that we just recently found in his eighth grade no. book. <laughs>
3: what was it called that was that was my billy joel phase <laughs> I, I wrote a song called? called the red tape of society the red tape when of I,
2: society <laughs> when i was when i was
3: in sixth grade yeah that was an intermediate step that i don't discuss much the
2: the girls that i uh are making so much fun of him because the whole song was, was about how he clearly had a crush on a girl from uptown. uh, And is the hook being let's fight the red tape of society is like, will you date me?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you, um, did you guys want to perform outside of theater? Were you guys ever playing at clubs in New York or were you ever trying to do that? Or was it always, this was going to be theater?
2: I did I did write pop songs for 5 minutes um for a group called The Strines. Uh and they were basically to to be played during Dawson's Creek um when they didn't want to license real rock songs, so they would license these um, and make them seem like they were the real thing playing on the radio. So that was that was my only foray into pop.
3: Um it was like those fake TVs in a and um, a furniture store. Right.
1: Yeah. You guys have written, um, you know, you, you guys have written a lot of lyrics and a lot of music to an existing book, which is different than um, in other genres where there is a story already in place, but there has to be some sort of interaction with the book writer, I assume, when you're writing lyrics. Um, oh, yeah. Explain how that process works.
2: Well, um, you know, when it's really chicken and egg, chicken and egg um, is really the best way to explain it. There's it's not like when we went to um, write original music for an animated movie. Um, It's not like there's a script and it says, like, write this song and this song and this song it starts with an idea. Um, The idea that we came, or that we started with on Frozen was like, there's two sisters. At the end, the true love that saves them is their own, not the prince's, um, let's write that musical. And um, it involves hours and hours of talking with the story team and the director and the writer, um, hours of songs that fall on the floor, I think we wrote 25 songs for Frozen, and there's seven and a half in the movie. Um, not all completely written. Some of them are completely written and even demoed. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, it's very, everything that we've done has been um, creating the original story with the team.
3: Yeah, and at Disney, um, it involved a lot of what we're doing now like video conferencing. We would video conference with the team in Burbank since we live in Brooklyn. Every day, you know, not every day, every week, but, but for weeks at a time, it's, it's an, it's a daily call. And sometimes we have a lot to discuss and sometimes it's less, but they've always pushed the ball forward on, you know, some uh, on their end and have stuff to share with us. And sometimes we, who spent less time with our heads in the movie have gained some perspective that they don't have. We bring fresh eyes to the story. And as you know, not every story wants to be a musical. So that's why we kind of, it's good for us to be there so much so we can keep our eye on, okay, is this, are these characters, uh, characters that would sing, is this, is the story kind of going to give us the, the fuel that we need for this to be a musical. And, um, they're wonderfully creative and collaborative at Disney. um, And they let us be there for so much of it. It was such a huge um, privilege to get to see the, the process over there from the inside, see the art that, that gets generated. It's, it's amazing.
1: You guys, you know, you guys met at the BMI theater workshop and that's, it seems like from there you guys were able to really enter the, uh, the musical theater world in New York on a really official level. You guys start making musicals that are being produced. Um, you started, you know, Bobby. You started working on Avenue Q with somebody, another person you met at the BMI theater workshop. So this place must have been incredible. We had, yeah. It,
3: I, we tell everyone that wants to write for musicals to to go join BMI because. I mean, certainly our experience was we had this amazing class. My class had me and Jeff Marks and Amanda Green, um, and Tom, Curtis Moore and Tom Miser, and Tom Kitt and Brian Yorkey. They were, they were all <laughs> in one class. and um, Their
2: class was epic, it epically was, good.
3: It was a great class. And not only that, there were all these other wonderful people who were equally talented, and they all formed a unit, a, an audience, really. Like, that was the main thing. You got to try out your song and see where the audience laughed. You got a sense of, um, you know, a sense of community, a sense of somebody wants to hear what you've written, which is very rare. Um, it's, a, it's really invaluable to a young writer. And um, Kristen and I met through that community. It was such a great, um, such a great thing. And Jeff and I uh, really bonded through humor. And that was that was what I really loved about BMI. I found... I found this um, this new joy, new passion about making the class break up and laugh. And uh, Avenue Q came out of that. Um, it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun to bring in another song and see how they would laugh.
2: And Maury Yeston was our teacher. Uh, Maury Yeston was the was the teacher of the advanced. And uh, talk about an artist who is so generous with his appreciation not every artist is like this it's very it's very easy to feel threatened by other writers coming up the pike even um, and maury estin just exemplified the exemplified mentorship you know he just was happy to say this is incredible wow and He would read your lyrics in this wonderful maury estin way and be like uh the sun is shining it's a lovely day perfect Perfect whatever for the kid to play uh he was he, it was so fun to hear your lyrics in his language in his voice
1: well, when you talk about there being uh some- not all stories are made for musicals um and then your first musical at the le- you know that level is one with puppets um that seems it's sort of almost counterintuitive. I I loved seeing it, and I remember seeing it and being like, "This is exactly what a musical should be." But I imagine that there were there are a lot of traditionalists who probably did not really react well to uh, that at first. It probably took a few people, you know. Um, yeah,
3: I guess. <laughs> a lot of people didn't. Didn't get it, and especially the people who didn't see the readings with which had puppets and um, where you saw them come to life and you know really believe in them. Um, So it was hard to get off the page. Um, And uh, oh, are you hearing um, the kind of digital breakup? Yeah, I'm hearing
2: digital breakup too on your end.
1: I'm not hearing. Okay,
3: hang on. Let me um, let me just quit out of Logic here.
2: Okay, sorry. I was wondering if it was just me.
3: You guys sound
1: like angels. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That? That's better. All of a sudden, you're just talking, but it's just angels. Just. <laughs> oh, no, it sounds clear, so it's probably sounding clear cool. for them. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Awesome.
2: Great. Where were we? Where... Wait,
1: you were saying how people didn't get to see the workshops where they could see the actual you know, puppets kind of come to life.
3: Yeah, uh, anyone that saw the workshop, of Avenue Q knew that it was something special and knew that it would work on, on stage. But anyone that heard the word puppet um, or just read the script without, you know, without a sense of what it would look like and how it would make you feel and what was funny about it, um, they all kind of tended to to say, "This is uh, this is not going to go well."
2: <laughs> like my parents when I was like, "Well, I'm dating a guy. Um, he lives with his parents, and he's writing this amazing puppet musical." <laughs>
1: Forgetting it, forgetting Sarah Marshall, which clearly you know was somewhat I, influenced by that. It's I sort of I've wow. always,
2: wondered about, I that, always yeah. wondered about
1: that too. Um, um, well, yeah. you have to wonder that hard. I think it has to be that, but um, a definite solid homage. Um, you know, you after the success of that, which wins all of the awards that you can hope a show can win. I I imagine that that starts to change your own not that you lacked confidence going into it, but it probably, I guess the question is, did it inspire you to make sure you never followed the rules from then on? You know what I mean? Because your shows were, are always a little bit left of center. The things that you guys both do independently are a little left of center. Was it, the success of that kind of gives you?
3: I think I sort of had a rule in my mind that um, you would want to, change one thing but keep another thing uh traditional so in in Av- the case of avenue q the content was um you know the 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 subject matter of it was kind of crazy but the um well wait what am i trying to say
2: subversive joy i think that the word is subversive joy everything that you do everything that we do um has to have a little bit of, like, the joy that makes something sing and then that subversive attitude. And, I mean, as your wife, I think that one of the superpowers Bobby has is that because he is this um, is this three-eighths Filipino uh, person who doesn't see himself very readily in any way. There's no 3 Filipino community that he can be part of. Um, he's, he's always been a little bit of like, I watch from the outside. And so everything that he does has has the a little bit of an outsider's perspective and, and the subversion that comes with it. And that's my analysis of him.
3: Yeah, um, I think that's right. Um, well, and also the idea of I think musicals have come back in a big way now. But back in the late 90s, they they were kind of less in the center of our culture um compared to now, and it felt necessary to um to do something different to attract people and to make them relevant to our generation. So the idea of, um, you know, animated musicals seemed like a, like a no brainer, but no one was offering us those jobs. However, we did know a puppeteer and no one had done a live puppet comedy on stage and, um, and nobody, but we kind of knew the charm that, that, the puppets coming to life right in front of your eyes brought to it. Um, and then with Book of Mormon, which was a show that, um, Dropped, you know, sort of came to me because M- Matt and Trey saw Avenue Q and realized how uh, inspired by them I was. Um, that that show came about, and um, y- you know, it needed to it it needed to f- be a very very you know um, traditional seeming show with a twisted center.
1: Yeah, I think that's one of those things. You can't rush it. And your careers have been very patient. And if you look at a discography and do an interview today, it seems like, wow, there's so much stuff that happens just back to back to back to back. But these things take so long to develop. You you start writing it and it takes, and it's six years before they get made into a show. Um, Why does it take so long?
2: Well, um, the story the story has to be right and and in the case of everything that we're talking about there's we're not adapting anything that exists it's always creating original story i mean avenue q is an original original musical book of mormon in transit frozen coco um right now frozen 2 frozen 2 up here um which is the, something we're <laughs> we've had going for a long long time and now it's uh, pivoting, back in our lives. Back in our lives. Um, they're all original, so you need to get the characters right. You need to get the outer story right, the inner story right. And, and it's like building a building. You you can't just put up the Empire State Building. You've got to make sure you've got the correct blueprints and then the correct materials and then the correct <laughs> the the correct feng shui inside of it. Um
3: and somehow i think also for non-musical projects when you write the script for a straight play or a movie um and then you and then somebody reads it they can get a sense of what the story is just from reading it but with a musical you really have to see it on its feet um and the chances are that the first draft doesn't work because as you're writing it you think you you think you have something but it's a uh, it's a collaboration between the au- the audience, the songs, and the and um, and the story at once. It creates a it creates its own energy um, that you can only really feel when there's an audience there, and that takes a lot to put together. Um, and you have to do a few of those in order you, uh, to to get the whole thing right. You wrote, I
1: don't. I, in order to get an EGOT, you have to get an Emmy, which you get another one later. But you, what's sort of special about the first one you win is that you wrote it with your brother. Yeah, yeah. Well, and awesome. both you guys have siblings that do music and do or do like the same. Not even just music, but kind of do the exact same thing. It's not like one is like, oh, I'm a jazz, you know, a, a jazz bassist, and the other guy's like, you know, uh, for lyrics, like, does whatever random beatnik poetry you guys all do similar things and can collaborate with your actual siblings it's the tyranny of um,
3: birth order again you know we're the first children and and our <laughs> and our younger siblings you know just idolize us and we'll <laughs> um, uh,
2: you- family reunions are very fun though i was just thinking back to last christmas we had everybody the both sides of the family all together and we just pulled out all the instruments and had had such a fun Christmas jam that was awesome. with everybody playing. You know, Bobby playing the or playing the piano. His brother on the electric guitar. My daughter on the bass. I think I had this thing called a Jingle and Johnny um, in in lieu of drums.
3: <laughs> Have you seen one of these? It's amazing. It's a stick. Oh, that has, it's a stick that has a snare like a pie plate with a snare on it. And a bell that you can hit with a stick. And, um, and
2: there's a cowbell element to it.
3: Yeah. And the bass drum is just hitting the, there's like a rubber ball on the bottom and you hit it against the floor and it thumps.
2: It's it's a fun instrument, unless you live above somebody. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. um, that feels like a solid apartment instrument though, because it's like, it's a whole band in one. That's fantastic. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's a shake weight with a band. In. Exactly. Yeah,
2: actually my arm was killing me for like a whole week after, after we, I played that thing for like four hours.
1: Just a Popeye, Popeye bicep. Just one. <laughs> yeah. um, let's talk about in transit. Um, uh, I was in an acapella group with uh, one of the members of your cast uh, you, when I was in college. Were you in the SoCal
2: Vocals? So- so-
1: Oh, the SoCal Vocal.
2: Yeah, I did my research. Um, We we loved the SoCal Vocals on the acapella contest. What was it called? Uh, The the uh,
1: tune-off. The
3: sing-off.
2: The sing-off.
1: Yeah. There were a bunch of people that we have in common, partly just from that, because so many of them went to New York to work in theater and audition for things you guys have been a part of. James Snyder was in your show. You know, that was... uh, I love him it was fun to you know it's it's always just fun to watch it i happen to just watch a lot of your shows go from off broadway to broadway and see that and one of my questions with in transit is you know that going from off broadway to broadway had a, a larger shift in its in the the in a way like the tone of some of the show that i saw from its infancy to that and I didn't see you know small versions of Avenue Q's and or Book of Mormon so I can't speak to that but you know being a part of a show that's been off Broadway and moving it to Broadway and seeing the transition of that um, you have to make I'm sure a lot of different story choices and a lot of different musical choices. What was it like to do the first all a cappella show on Broadway, but to have to take something that's that intimate? You know, uh,
2: that was very challenging. It was very challenging in so many ways. Uh, it was challenging because. One of the hardest things about being in previews is how quickly you need to move and pivot. Um, And it's one thing, I mean, it's very difficult when you make a big change to then have the copyists there that have to make the change in all of the orchestrations and then they have to rehearse it right before the show the next night. Imagine doing this, but you're a cappella, So you have, it's not, like you have the sheet music in front of you, any change we had to be careful to use existing bars of music. People already knew, or it was going to mean hours of vocal rehearsal. Um, that was just one of the numerous things that made, uh, you know, many, many reasons why it's never been done before. And we discovered them all. <laughs> I mean, one thing
1: that was amazing is that all of the, um, all of the actors had in ears yes, and their own board mix, which yes. no other show <laughs> has that for the actors, I mean, you know the band's playing, they may have their own board mix, you know the drummer's going to have a different mix and whatever, but actors to have that um, i can
2: 't imagine how complicated that is it was It was so complicated, and the our cast i mean they 're all so lovely and close because they became. They they became such a family because they truly were out there without a net, um, just each other every single night. Um, And the and Rick Hipflores, our musical director, who was in their in ears, um, who also was playing the notes uh, so that they could get their pitches. Um, but there was a whole world in their in ears, <laughs> and then they were having to act and change costume and move sets. I mean, it was it great. was a shame
3: because you kind of needed to know a little bit about acapella to understand how, how hard what they were doing was. It didn't look as hard as it was. They made yeah. it look they made it look effortless. But yeah, that that show was a, it was a miracle that it happened.
2: I, to me, um, I'm. I'm very proud that we did something that's never been done before. Um, but it also taught me a lesson of how ultimately, ultimately story drives everything. Ultimately, if, if you're doing the job, right, people forget how hard the music is and the story is what they're paying attention to. And, um, even when people are like literally, jumping through hoops <laughs> to make the music with their own voices.
1: So interesting. So that's been a, a, the complicated part for me in that world is learning about uh, you know intention, obstacle, and tactics and, and, and how as to bring that into the pop world, having learned that from the theater world, that you can't just have an actor walk on stage and just sing a song because the song's good. They actually have to want something. They have mm-hmm. to want to achieve it. You know, there has to be something in the way that there's a reason why they're singing that song.
2: And who uh, are they talking to often? Who are they
1: talking to? And in the, in the pop world, you often just have somebody just saying a matter of fact, this is something that exists. And it's like, well, they, but, but how is that? You know, how do you expect even a, an artist to want to cut that? They're also have to, you know, the, I was trying to use the example, sorry, this is a circuitous, but you know, in a painting I, I tend to not really like just still life this is a vase but if you had an empty vase and you had somebody reaching to try to put flowers in the vase but their arms are too short I would look <laughs> at that painting and I would probably put that on my wall because that actually is like the the struggle of putting Conflict. the flowers the Conflict, yeah. Conflict, like our the little big
2: our youngest used to um, Bobby would tell these these stories at night and she would get really upset at him if there wasn't enough conflict like, dad something needs to happen it's boring it's boring <laughs> having kids makes it, you yeah. realize like your stories your stories better have some conflict or nobody cares
1: um totally true why did it take so long for you guys to collaborate here you guys you know book of mormon comes out in In the middle of uh between in transit off Broadway and going to Broadway Book of mormon is uh, a big success um, you guys are getting nominated and winning awards and why aren't you guys writing all these things together from the well,
3: funny you should funny you should ask because we were actually we had started writing together early on. And when we were dating, we did a couple of songs for Disney channel. And that was a fun way to spend time to justify spending time away from our other collaborators and to get, and to get to spend it together. And then, um, when we were married, um, Kristen had the opportunity to write something for Disney theme parks. Uh, she wrote a, a treatment for finding Nemo, the musical, and they, they bought it. It, it, it was sold. And, um, she they said, which composer would you like to work with on it? And she said, actually, my husband, I I'm um, I, I married to Bobby Lopez. And they were like, oh, OK, cool. So we um, we we made a show called Finding Nemo, the musical, which up until the pandemic was so sad. The pandemic kind of I wonder if it's killed it. I don't know.
2: We don't know. They're uh, all of the employees are if not furloughed, um, let go at this moment. Um, so I don't know if it's coming back or not. I hope it is.
3: But it played from 2006 to 2019 in, uh, in that park in Disney's animal kingdom, Florida. And then, um, and then we were writing a show called up here, which was, a. um, it, this was, this was while we were doing book of Mormon and in transit. We all, were also writing this other show, which was a very ambitious show about, um, about a guy's brain basically the guy um who was in a relationship he was an introverted guy uh, in a relationship with an extroverted girl and it was there it, it was it was a little bit um
2: it had, autobiog- had autobiographical elements Stones, to it yeah
3: and um it was a very difficult show to develop we developed it with the director alex timbers for a while and that culminated with a show with a um a production in la jolla in 2015 which happened right after frozen but right. that, that took forever
2: right that was a long one in part because we also had two children in the middle of all of that um it, it having having children um is the greatest thing that we've ever done together but it definitely slowed down our collaboration for a second because because one of us when they were really really small uh, it was mostly me, needed to kind of stop and, and you know, breastfeed them and, and bond with them for at least the first year. Uh, so I, I didn't
3: breastfeed as much. Yeah, Bobby. <laughs> but um, we actually also, and we wrote another movie called Winnie the Pooh for Disney Animation. That was from, that came out in 2011 too. So we actually have been working together on this parallel career for our entire marriage.
2: And the truth is everything that I did without Bobby he was secretly whispering in my ear, um, the whole time and everything he did without me, I was maybe not so secretly whispering in his <laughs> ear. I remember once giving, not
3: even whispering, giving just notes talking in my ear.
2: Coming up after a workshop and, you know, giving some really basic notes, uh, of saying, you know, well, you really need to let us know in Book of Mormon, you need to let us know that, uh, you know the africans getting baptized are aware are, are aware that this is just metaphors or whatever and realizing i was giving him notes in front of um scott rudin <laughs> right
3: and some of those notes we knew <laughs> um
1: i would ask about scott rudin but i i know that, that that'd be a separate podcast so let's go to but but i am curious about um uh book of mormon you know I, it becomes so big it's such a big show i mean Avenue Q is a big show. In Transit is a big show. But um I know that you know Book of Mormon ends up having this um you know it's toured around it's it's so big. It's a different even the puppeteer sh- uh, a show with puppeteers is a different skill set. So it's harder to probably harder to tour that I would imagine than in in the same level that Book of Mormon where you can probably have I guess some high schools might allow them to do it. You know, it just seems like a show that...
3: No, there's there's not a lot of high schools doing Avenue Q and Book of Mormon. um, Um,
1: But but Book of Mormon is just such a big show. Um, Did that change your perspective on theater when you see... You know, you guys have seen shows work where you guys make a living at it and have done well and won awards, but there's a different thing, you know, when you have a show that's that big. Um, You know, I thought,
3: I got to tell you, I thought Avenue Q was the, I thought it would be the pinnacle of my career. And it was pretty, it was a, it was an enormous, um, it was a small show, but it was a big hit. And it really did change our lives completely, a hundred percent opposite direction because we, you know, before Avenue Q, I could barely scrape together $20,000 a year. It was really a rough, uh, a rough road to hoe. And then Avenue Q really, um, you know, was it, it, it was a great living for a really long time. And it allowed us to spend the time on projects, only the projects that we wanted to do. We never had to take a job for money. And um, nothing after that has ever been quite the same because it's, my life already got changed by Avenue Q. And even when we, even when Frozen came out, that was amazing. But it You know, my life didn't change. It was like, okay, now we have another hit. But um,
2: Avenue Q did. It it was life changing for us because we really were, uh, you know, while he was writing Avenue Q, um, we were living on my teaching artist salary for uh, a couple of months. And on the way to the opening night of Avenue Q, we also had to go to my temp job and pick up the check or we were going to have no money like not even cab fare, to get home. I had to pick up the check and deposit it in the bank so it would hit that night, so we would have enough money to get through the weekend. Um, Like, we were scraping by. Um, And then Avenue Q brought brought some uh, abundance into our life. But it also, the thing that I think Bobby talks about eloquently, uh, I've heard him talk about, it it, it also was a moment um, to it it changes your relationship to the freedom to fail, I think. Success can be very scary and you kind of have to, um, you have to ride that wave and then say like, this happened to me and now I have to go back to the blank page again and not carry the need to do it again. Um, you know, and, and I, I experienced it fresh. I experienced what Bobby had talked about after Avenue Q, him saying, I've got to just get rid of the pressure. I've got to get rid of the pressure. Um, I experienced it after Frozen, um, that it took a minute to just get your head back to beginner's mind, to say like, that is something that's something that happened. And yes, you know, everyone in the world is singing, let it go. And for a second, for a second it was like everyone was singing Let It Go really happily and then six months later every parent was coming up and saying like your kid my kid keeps singing Let It Go and so there was like the fun ride the fun wave and then the aftershock (laughs) Um, and to, to just say like that's outside of me but I'm working on a new project and I have a character who is just as as alive and important and needs my attention as Elsa. So, thank you Elsa. Now we're going to write for uh for Miguel um and um you know or whoever it is that we are writing for uh really have to just be the same person you were.
1: Um, I mean, I think that's really eloquent. There are a lot of writers where uh you know I don't see that. You know, I don't see all your awards behind you. It may be in front of you, maybe in that room. I don't know. But a lot of you know, it's it's hard sometimes to be creative in a room that has all of your past accolades on the wall and look at it and say, you know, sometimes I see it as looming, and sometimes I see it as, um, no, it's okay. It's okay. Stick with it because you didn't know in any of those either. You know, right. that, you know. So, so there's like a there's that mind game when when you're dealing with success and the success that you guys have had is it is a different thing. When you were talking about let it go, I think you summed it up really nicely. Um,
2: the other thing um, that we found really helpful is that we realized, because often songs that we write land on the floor and nobody ever gets to hear them again. And that can be really devastating, too. Um, you know, if a story changes and we've just written our favorite song we've ever written, but now the character does something else because because somebody changed it, their mind in Burbank, um, we used to get really upset about that. And now we realized that even when we go on vacation, we write songs together. Like we, we just love writing together. We love creating. So now we have this mantra of something falls on the floor and then we just say like, well, it's an excuse to get to write another song and spend those hours because the, I know it sounds kind of corny and it it, it isn't always this way, but um, the, some of the best hours of my life will be those moments that we found uh, that melody, or we found that hook, or we found the place where the lyric and the music just made my skin turn uh, all goose pimply, um, and those those are the height, the highest moments of living for us sometimes,
3: yeah, and when it goes well, we have a blast, we laugh, we sort of play act scenes we improvise and it's just fun it's like a play date when you do it when we do it right and we don't always do it right as kristen said sometimes it feels like hitting your head against that wall and that's when you need that sign um don't bang head against wall
1: you know you mentioned the jrb interview that we did the jason robert brown one and you know here's a guy who's writing everything alone and it's a and it's a different thing when you have someone else in the room. That at least if you're gonna, you know, it's hard to play act by yourself. You have to really lose yourself in that, and you know,
3: definitely hard to do anything uh, anything comic. I don't think I could write a comedy song by myself. But when Kristen's around, make each other laugh. We, you know, and you, if it actually makes you laugh out loud in the room, then it has a chance of making people laugh out loud. In the seats.
2: And that's not to say we don't do things alone, too, because, you know, often lately, I think because of the pandemic, we've been forced a little bit more to say, to, like, if we have to write a song, um, I'll go off with a notepad and just disappear for three hours. And that means that somebody else has got to be making the lunch and making sure that the people are getting on their Zooms for the, you know, the virtual education Um and then there'll be times that then I'll take over and I'll say like, Bobby, here's this lyric, do with it what you want. He gets two hours of uninterrupted time. The uninterrupted time has been the hardest challenge in this pandemic. And we've had to basically create shifts. So, and then sometimes we can find, we've, we've found our groove a little bit more um, where we can say like, okay, we've got two hours this afternoon
3: yeah, lunch used to be a treat that we ordered, and now it is something that we make for other people.
2: <laughs> Every meal.
1: Um, in this next segment, what would Lynn manuel Miranda ask the Lopez's? He has a few questions for you guys. Oh. Lynn <laughs>
3: is, that- Lin- is my old school. Um, well, but we weren't really in school together, but we went to the same school. They not,
2: both had the same teacher who did musicals. Uh, like This teacher, Mrs. Ames, deserves an award because she is the person who created a love of musical theater for Bobby Lopez and Lynn manuel Miranda because that's true. they did the fifth grade musical every year at Hunter High School.
3: She and, was our muse.
2: The power of one educator.
1: That's amazing. Shout out, Mrs. Ames. For yeah. Sure. Um, he asks, how much changes between your first demo and your final arrangement? And just going back to what we were talking about, I thought that this was important. How much changes between your first demo and the final arrangement? That's his first question. Well, I guess his follow-up is, have you ever found really vital stuff along the way?
3: Oh, definitely. I mean, and it's different for every song. Some songs, we make a piano demo, and everything, uh, you know, then uh, the orchestrator creates an orchestration, we always write figures and an arrangement. And sometimes the orchestrator adds uh, arrangement figures to it. And sometimes he he or she just takes what we've done and, and puts it on the orchestra. And then there's sometimes when we make a demo that is more fully fleshed out with, um, with this and that. Um, And uh, I've been learning to work with an assistant to help some of my, uh, ideas kind of take shapes. Cause I, I never have time to wrestle with the samples. Some of these samples are really hard to learn how to use. Um, they, they all have different interfaces and I just don't have time to, to learn it, like how to make a string quartet, but I, I know what I want the string quartet to sound like. And, um, and so I've got this assistant, Justin, that knows all that technical stuff and is able to help bring some of our ideas to life. And that's been a nice way to grow, um, in the last few years or so, I'm able to actually be a little bit more in the arrangement the the next project we have coming out, which we're not allowed to announce our involvement with, but it's, it's, it's a uh, Disney plus series. That's coming out in January. Um, we, we did a lot of, um, we did a lot of work on the songs, um, in and arrangement-wise, and it was a blast to discover fun elements. Um,
2: and the challenge, the challenge is always um, making sure we leave room for our orchestrator collaborator to to, um, to add really add something and plus it. And we don't say like, oh, we don't get too precious about what we created. And sometimes what we created was right. And anyone adding to it just sort of diminishes the purity of it. So you've really got to learn how to trust your ears and learn how to say, okay, am I, am I holding on to what we had too hard? Or do I, do I know that this just diminished it? So it's a tricky thing. With Book yeah, of Mormon.
1: He said, have you ever lost the thread of a tune? Because the arrangement got too elaborate, hectic, you know, far from the original impulse.
3: Yeah, but we always trim it back. <laughs> yes,
2: Bobby is Bobby is um, uh, pretty strict about that. If he, if something doesn't make it better, he will always say like, pare it back, pare it back. <laughs> I
3: don't know if I could say this, but there was one time I was working with an orchestrator on a demo for Book of Mormon, and um, <laughs> and he said, "And if you make me cut one more horn line, I will give you my aids." <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah bobby's a good line. it's hard to get through uh get through bobby's editorial presence on the um arrangements and, and i really trust bobby's instincts and only every once in a while i'll just be like if it needs more french horn just give me more french horn
3: kristen has great great instincts too she's a big picture person and i will get lost in the weeds sometimes and she'll be like actually it doesn't work because you have missed the big picture. You need, we need something big on that beat.
2: And sometimes it's, it's about talking to our collaborators, almost um, using like literary metaphors, just saying like, uh, we've gone too purple. Uh, We've gone too purple and we need to, or even using like filters. I I want cool, vivid, not warm.
3: But I've, I've actually seen this work though. Kristen will talk to the whole orchestra in in warner brothers studio like the hundred people with violins and cellos and horns and flutes and get on the mic and say it this is a vulnerable moment you have to play vulnerably and the conductor's like scratching his head going like okay the right. conductor's like,
2: oh, i'm so embarrassed that she's <laughs> giving them acting notes
3: but but it works giving the giving the orchestra acting notes works
2: because they are, they, they in, are a, in a story, in a story where the music is telling an important part of like a decision and a feeling. And you've got a hundred of the greatest musicians who clearly understand how to convey emotion through their gift. Sometimes it's, I think of them as actors um, and that we're all actors and we're all supporting, you know, the emotion that Adina is providing in her vocal. We all kind of need to be in that same place so it feels unified.
1: Um, When you've been taught, earlier you mentioned how trying to deal with the success of Avenue Q and the success of Let It Go and and what it was like to then have to follow up a a hit. Um, There's a TED Talk by the woman who wrote Eat, Pray, Love about that. You know, the idea of, how do you write your second opus? Right, that, that she wrote nuts. that
2: beautiful book about it. Um, yeah. I never remember titles, but I read the book. Uh, and and in fact, unfortunately, we
3: can't give you credit. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <Sorry>. <laughs> but I I actually read that book after Frozen opened. It it had nice timing because it was the summer, or it was like came out right after the year after Frozen had opened, and we were. Definitely grappling with how our life had changed and how the way people saw us changed. That was that was the hardest part.
1: Did we didn't feel like
2: people anymore?
1: Remember Me comes out and it wins your second Oscar, which has got to be like just the first one's great, but the second one is also one of those things you probably get to appreciate it differently because.
3: Well that was nice because we had written Remember Me before winning the Oscar for Let It Go. <laughs> it was kind of already wow. in the bag. Uh we, we that that movie took a very long time cuz the release date kept changing. And um we wrote a number of other songs for it too, but um but only Remember Me of out of the songs we wrote remained in the in the film and Honestly, like the way that they created that movie and the, the, the loving attention to detail uh, in the animation was just magical. It was really, it, and I still treasure getting to watch that scene, the way they put it together. Every shot and expression just makes me cry. Because oh, yeah. it's uh, Leon, Gritch, about it.
2: Leon Gritch is a, a, such a visionary and a extraordinary director. We were so lucky uh, oh. to work with him.
3: But we had to follow up the the pressure of Frozen when we did when we uh, worked on Frozen Two. That was a pretty direct um, situation. It was a one one on one scenario. Like I take these characters again, write them another musical, following up on the first one, and uh, go. <laughs> right. Although I
2: have to say Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck um, also extraordinary storytellers and and people who had also been through their own journey on like frozen, frozen hit. And it did something that none of us expected it would do. We just wanted to have a movie that didn't suck. (laughs) Um, That's all we were going for. (laughs) And, and it, you know, it, it did what it did. And so when we came together to work on frozen Two, Jen and Chris said, we're not, there's no pressure. We will not put pressure on ourselves to write another Frozen, and you do not have to put pressure on yourself to write another Let It Go. We're going to do the same thing we did before, which is talk about story and theme and really find the emotions that have, um, that connect to people and say something about life and change.
1: I mean, how often are, do Disney movies have successful sequels? I mean, this must be an exciting thing to be a part of. It feels like it's a new era. I mean, I know that they've had them, but it, there was an era where a lot of the sequels went too straight to... Right. You know, it was
2: terrifying. It was terrifying because, um, because writing a musical sequel is very challenging because if you've done your job right the first time, you've let all the toothpaste out of the tube
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah totally
2: um and and so we had to sort of find a way to find like where where's the toothpaste that didn't come out like oh actually is elsa really where she belongs um decorating you know making making ice sculptures in the castle is that really where elsa belongs and that's sort of the the trail we chased in into the
1: Unknown, which congratulations is nominated like crazy all over the place. Thanks. Um, did you know that that was the, you know, I guess you would say the single when you were done with it. It was it designed to be the the song from the movie, or is it something where the movie's done and everyone says, "Nah, that's the song."
3: We didn't think about it that way. We were really looking for it. We were looking for what would be different in this movie. And I think one thing we found early was that Elsa was the protagonist of this story in a way that she wasn't in the first film. So in the first film, she didn't get an I Want song. uh, And she didn't really go on a journey. She was reacting the entire time. She was running away, really. She was trying to avoid causing chaos and destruction and trying to avoid hurting her family. And then in Frozen 2... It became, for the first time in her whole life, she could. She was happy enough to say, "What is it that I want? What is it that I, you know, would want in my, you know, if I if I could want something?" And um, that's what "Into the Unknown" was. It was her "I Want" song. Really, it was her, and it was also um, telling the story of that she was called to uh, to something that she wasn't really ready to face, but was in the end something she needed to go through an adventure to get to one of the i was
2: i was just, just going to add that um show yourself was written so late in the movie too um it was still coming together um at the time that uh we had to submit everything uh oh um you're gonna start hearing piano our, Annie's practicing our daughter is playing uh, have sure. yourself a merry little christmas um, um uh, Show yourself was was later and and really came together at the very very end. You could see it on the Disney Plus uh, documentary series, um, how late it came together, and and so we didn't know that we could submit it because it hadn't been animated.
3: Plus, it was full of spoilers. Yeah. So um, that's another that's another thing you don't often think about with a with a uh, with writing a song. Full of One
1: of the questions with the song, which is interesting. Um, Arrangement-wise, speaking of spoilers, Lynn also asked this question, which I really like. He said, "I'm obsessed with how the call in into the unknown is also the interval Elsa sings in the climax of the chorus. Did you work backwards from the chorus itself or did you always have the call and build it into the song?" Which came I think we, the we had or the, the
3: call? call. We had the call because we wanted to use DSRA in in the song, um, you know, Diasire is the church motif from the, from you know, the early beginnings of the church that's associated with death. And, um, and so we had the idea that there would be a voice, musical voice calling to her and we decided it would be, ah, so then Elsa builds to, into the unknown. I think we definitely were thinking she's echoing the call, right?
2: Yeah. Yes i 'm um, trying to remember when we wrote it because in some i mean some ways we have happy accidents because um, I think we were sort of improving, we knew it was like anything the unknown the unknown and sometimes it 's just like what feels good for the next thing and, and I think we were we knew it was like the <singing> like unknown just that, it, that felt fun to do that melisma um and at least that's how i remember it but
1: but here's a question about adina i i, I worked with her on uh, a song called small world a while ago and she has a um you know she has her style of singing that's different than what's written on the page naturally you know she will just put herself She naturally just goes there and is like, this is, it's just her. Yeah. When she sings a song, how strict are you to the notes on the page versus sometimes being like, well, that's actually a really good choice that she's made?
2: Um, we're we're pretty strict. Bobby is definitely a sing the ink kind of guy, um,
3: doesn't make me sound cool, but
1: <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm the same way. So I'm 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 asking more because it's it's a different, you know. Sometimes you're around singers who 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 put a great ad lib at some point, whether they meant to or not, and you and sometimes I question always, what you take the ad lib and make it part of the song. You know, we
3: always keep um, we always keep one riff that Adina adds. Yeah, and um, let it go. It was. Uh,
2: which one was it? Um I think it's the it's in the second chorus. Here I stand and here I'll stay.
3: No, I think it was um it was keep it in. Light of day Yeah, that's that, it. she that she added that. Um and it's uh, that weird
1: thing where, you know, it's, as a writer, part of your, I feel like part of your job is to recognize when greatness sort of just has a moment in a and, song mm-hmm. and it's
3: that sit back and say,
1: yeah, okay. If this is Elsa's song too, you and know, that's why you
3: want Adina. she, she's connected to greatness. She's always searching for it. She's only able to really sing what feels authentic to her. Um, she doesn't, she's sort of incapable of bullshit as a, as an actress. And, um, she, th- that sort of primal thing that she does, is from a true place within her, and um, that's you're lucky to ever get to work with a singer like that. So, we we don't, you know, we respect the hell out of Dina's uh, choices and we always give her the chance to do anything she wants but we also try and get it the way we imagined it originally and then we you know then we play the, the game of putting it together like where where do we stray from what we had thought originally um that's one of the great things about getting to getting to comp a solo performance together
1: Well, that concludes our interview with Kristen and Bobby Lopez. Uh, the nature of the beast, as you know, in this COVID times is that sometimes Zoom meetings mysteriously end. But we did finish the conversation. And just to give you an idea of what we talked about, we talked about the EGOTs and what that meant. We talked about Katie and Annie, their daughters, and and they each got a chance to, uh, to talk about each other. And... Again, afterwards, I just had an opportunity to tell them that, you know, it's so unusual for us to interview people who have excelled in so many facets, but, you know, you don't win Emmys, Grammys, Oscars, Tonys, or in, uh, you know, in Kristen's case, a go-go, two Grammys and two Oscars. You don't win these things because um, you're so focused on, on something small, they're... They're managing to tell stories that will be told, you know, for as long as there's theater, as long as there are people watching movies. So, again, it was so amazing to have them on, and I hope we have them on again. I hope you guys all have a wonderful Christmas, wonderful. Uh, I'm sure Hanukkah's done by the time you guys hear this, but uh, have a wonderful New Year's, have a wonderful holiday, whatever you celebrate. And we'll be back in the beginning of 2021 with some more interviews. Super excited about it. And again, thank you for an amazing uh, end of 2020 regarding our podcast. We hope all of you are safe. Stay at home, wear a mask, and uh, we'll see you on, on the flip side. Thank you so much.